Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be part of an archaeological dig in Israel? Maybe just for a day? What would it feel like to run a trowel or shovel through ancient ground? How might that experience shape your understanding of Scripture? Well, grab your water bottle and boots because you're about to take part in a dig for a day. Plus, we'll share some fresh ideas on how you can reach out to your Jewish friend on the land and the book. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, I'm John Geiger. And, you know, once our program is over, people say, where can we turn for more content about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people? And Life and Messiah has been focused recently on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel. Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to those important topics, and we encourage you to check out their content, which will be inspiring and uplifting. As a special for Land in the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button, you can get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org, and then click on the Moody Radio button. Here are the significant events happening this week in the Middle East. As the first judicial overhaul bill makes its way toward a final vote, the level of opposition continues to ratchet up in Israel. What's been happening over the past week, and what could the future hold? You know, John, the rhetoric and the emotion on both sides has reached a fever pitch. Uh, Those pushing for judicial reform see passage of the bill as a necessary first step in their plans to limit the power of the judiciary. Those opposed to the reform see it as nothing less than the end of democracy itself in Israel. And right now, neither side seems to be really interested in any talk of compromise. The opposition presented over 27,000 proposed amendments to the bill, which delayed the committee's vote by several days. But the bill was eventually voted out of committee, and it's expected to be voted into law by the Knesset this coming week. In the meantime, Doctors held a two-hour strike on Wednesday as hospitals and clinics protested the bill, forcing the cancellation of elective procedures and non-urgent treatment for several hours. Uh, They claimed the bill would devastate the health care system, though they didn't fully explain how those two relate. Military reservists and pilots have also threatened not to serve if the bill is passed. Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke out against the military threat, saying, insubordination directly endangers the security of all Israeli citizens and erodes the deterrence against Israel's enemies. He said it's these type of threats that would really bring about the destruction of democracy. So what might happen in the next few days and weeks? Well, it depends on large measure on whether or not cooler heads can prevail and work toward compromise. If that doesn't happen, then Israel could find itself in danger of fracturing along ideological lines with each side trying to force its vision for the country's future on the other. Uh, Look for additional strikes, disruptions to transportation, and possibly even attacks against infrastructure. Groups like Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas could see this disruption as an opportunity to push forward their plans against Israel, hoping to pressure Israel from without, even as the country collapses from within. Another possibility is that the current government could collapse and new elections could be called. Sadly, right now, polls suggest that wouldn't resolve anything because no clear majority would emerge. Well, Charlie, what is the most likely scenario? The bill will pass, and and then what? What is a likely outcome? Well, uh, I think there's going to be something going on behind the scenes, very likely with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu trying to modify the bill slightly, perhaps trying to work with uh, President Herzog, but trying to somehow uh, make it more palatable 
or certainly uh, less distasteful to try and diffuse the opposition. But uh, we'll see if he can work his magic. Otherwise, uh, it really is seeming like it's just had two trains on the same track heading toward each other at rapid speed. Hmm. Now, you mentioned Iran possibly using this situation in Israel to advance their agenda for the Middle East. How serious of a threat is Iran in this? And could their pursuit of nuclear weapons bring an extra level of complexity to the situation? You know, people need to stop and remember Iran is a theocracy. Uh, They're committed to Israel's destruction as a matter of religious belief. Their supreme leader went on record back in 2016 saying Israel will not exist in 25 years. Now, we're used to politicians saying things, you know, simply to get elected. But when Iran's leaders shout death to Israel, they mean it. Uh, If they see what's happening in Israel today as a sign of internal weakness and decay, they could try to exploit the situation and, and push Hezbollah and Hamas to attack Israel from Lebanon, Syria, and Gaza, while also working to generate unrest among the Arab population within Israel itself. Israel would have to fight a war on multiple fronts, especially if Iran was actively involved, and much would depend on U.S. military aid and support. Right now, the U.S. is sending mixed signals. We did just hold a joint air drill with Israel using our tankers to help them simulate an air attack against a target like Iran. But at the same time, a recent U.S. intelligence assessment was released that concluded Iran is not pursuing nuclear weapons at the moment even though they've ramped up activities that could help them develop those weapons very quickly. Right now, Israel's concerned that U.S. dissatisfaction with their current government, coupled with our reluctance to get involved militarily, could put them in a very uncomfortable position should they determine Iran is about to cross that nuclear threshold. Now, if they do reach that decision, John, they will act with or without our help. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, frequent traveler to Israel. I'm John Geiger, and we're working our way through a list of stories all based in the Middle East from this past week. Well, a tech firm called BiblePix is attempting to merge the Bible and artificial intelligence to help people engage with the biblical text. What exactly are they doing, and and could this really help people connect to the Bible, Charlie? Yeah, John, I have mixed feelings about this program and app. It's available for free online, and it does produce some stunning pictures. Uh, The company behind the app says it's not affiliated with any specific religious group or denomination. It's hard to tell even if it's uh, backed by uh, Jewish individuals or by a Christian group. Uh, But it's designed, they say, as a resource to get people to read the Bible and engage with it in a new way. And we, of course, like that. Uh, But they're also careful to say the pictures are generated based on keywords from the biblical text, but aren't meant to be taken as literal depictions of the events described in the Bible. In one sense, uh, the pictures are similar to the illustrations often found in Bibles, especially those for younger audiences. You know, we're used to having Bibles with illustrations in them. But the more controversial part of the site is where they use artificial intelligence to enable readers to chat with Bible characters like Mm. Moses, David, Jesus, John, or even God. They gather information about those characters from the Bible itself, so you can ask the characters questions and have them provide answers. And to me, that's the uh, major problem. I I think many will soon confuse the artificial intelligence-generated text for the biblical text. I went on, John, and had a conversation with the prophet Amos. (laughs) Initially, it was interesting, but when I asked Amos a less obvious question— the program provided an answer that was just off base. Other times, it simply provides false information, but without any hint that it's wrong. For example, 
in the facts about Eve. It says she's mentioned in the Bible 160 times and first appears in Numbers 4, verse 44. <laughs> by the way, that verse happens to say, quote, counted by their clans were 3,200. There's no mention of Eve there. Now, I'll stick with the low-tech Bible concordance on this, which says her first appearance is in Genesis 3:20, and she's mentioned by name just four times in the Bible. Now, so the bottom line is the program is not a substitute for Bible reading, Bible study, or even Bible trivia. So if you do go to biblepicks.co, do it with your eyes wide open. <laughs> well, in 1966, the movie Fantastic Voyage presented the fanciful story of miniaturized humans traveling through the bloodstream into the human brain to remove a blood clot. Now, fast forward in time 57 years to a startup company in Israel developing a micro-robot that can travel across the blood-brain barrier, though not with miniaturized humans inside. Charlie, this uh, sounds like another innovation from Amazing Israel. It is, John, and uh, this story even has a backstory to it. Uh, three Israeli innovators founded two companies. The first was called Prime Sense, and it became a world leader in 3D sensors. In fact, that company was purchased by Apple back in 2013, and it powers their Face ID program. Now, these three individuals then founded Bionaut Labs to develop a micro-robot smaller than a grain of rice. This robot can be guided through a patient to a targeted spot in the brain where it can perform minor surgery or deliver therapeutic drugs or return with a tissue sample for a biopsy. The robot's guided to the target by a physician using a powerful magnet. The advantages to the robot are it can help surgeons avoid having to perform invasive brain surgery or to try and get drugs past the blood-brain barrier. The companies developed several different micro-robots, each designed for a different purpose. They're currently in discussions with the FDA, and they hope to begin clinical trials next year. 67 years after the Fantastic Voyage was in theaters, a real Fantastic Voyage through the human bloodstream into the brain is almost ready to launch. And John, it's all thanks to the innovative scientists at Bionaut Labs in amazing Israel. What a cool story. Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate this look at current events. Hey, we'd love to connect with you, hear from you, listen to your thoughts about our program. Send us an email, will you? Let us know how you listen, when you listen, and what you get most out of the program. Here's how you connect, thelandandthebook.org. And while you're in the writing mood, why not send an email or old-fashioned card to the management at this station thanking them for the land and the book. Up next on the program, a dig for a day. What it's like to be part of an archaeological dig in Israel. We'll have boots on the ground next, right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be part of an archaeological dig in Israel, maybe just for a day? What would it feel like to run a trowel or shovel through ancient ground? How might that experience shape your understanding of Scripture? Well, grab your water bottle and boots. We're about to head out. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, and as you're lacing up your hiking boots, let's uh, dig into this idea for sharing Jesus with a Jewish friend or neighbor. When you sit down in an honest conversation with a Jewish friend about Christianity, the objection you often hear is that the New Testament is full of errors. Levi Hazen is executive director of Life in Messiah. How, how should we reply to that? Well, John, volumes have been written 
that provide evidence of the New Testament's reliability as a historical document. Are you aware there are no contemporary historical records that contradict the New Testament authors? Mm. And where the New Testament can be checked against external sources, they're consistently accurate. So why wouldn't we take the New Testament as being historically reliable? When I encounter this topic in conversation with my Jewish friends, I like to try and work in several questions. The first of which is, have you read the New Testament? I'm shocked by how many people have opinions about a book they've never actually read. <laughs> Second, I like to ask my Jewish friends if they're aware that the New Testament is a Jewish document at its core. The authors were Jewish, it's about a Jewish Messiah from Israel, and it relies heavily on the Hebrew Bible to make its case. In using these questions and others like it, my hope is that God will soften their hearts to exploring the New Testament and Jesus for themselves. Insights from Levi Hazen, who's with Life in Messiah, and you're listening to The Land and the Book. Bill Crowder is the Vice President of Teaching Content for Our Daily Bread Ministries and spends much of his time in Bible conference ministry around the world. He's also a co-host for Discover the Word radio broadcast and a contributing writer for Our Daily Bread devotional. Bill has written lots of books, including For This He Came, God of Surprise, Moving Beyond Failure, and Wisdom for Our Worries. We're really glad you joined us today on The Land and the Book, Bill. Thank you, John. It's great to be with you, man. Well, I understand you have led a number of study group trips to Israel, about 10 days each. I got to ask uh, right off the bat, what's a, a favorite memory from one of those trips that comes to mind? Could be about anything. Well, probably my favorite memory came after the first trip. We were flying back, and there was a particular couple from our church who were a part of that trip, and um, their adult children had kind of given them some grief about going on the trip and saying it was a waste of money and you don't really want to do this and your health's not good enough and all these different things. And they were determined. They wanted to go to the Bible lands. And so they came on the trip. And on the flight back, I noticed at one point that his wife had gotten up to go back to the lavatory or something. And so I just went and sat down next to him and I said, Phil, when you see your kids and they ask you, was it worth it? What are you going to say? He said, what I'm going to say is this. Before I came to the Bible lands, I read the Bible in black and white. Now I read it in living color. Hmm. And I thought, boy, that is such a great statement. I told him, I'm going to steal that and I'm going to use it often <laughs> uh, because it really is true. It brings the scriptures to life so much that almost anything that you experience there is in some way going to enhance how you read the Bible. Yeah. Well, what are your top two or three favorite places in Israel? Well, um, when I've led trips to Israel, John, I've tried to have a mix of Old Testament and New Testament and a mix of biblical and secular and a mix of ancient and modern. And so my favorite places to go kind of reflect those things. On the biblical side, New Testament, I love going to Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus asked that question, who do you say that I am? Mm -hmm. And Peter responded, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I love being there because seeing the context and the setting in which Jesus chose to ask that question really adds great weight and significance to the question. Mm -hmm. As far as Old Testament is concerned, I love Mount Carmel because from atop Mount Carmel, you look down into the valley and you can see uh, the kinds of things that Elijah might have seen uh, the day that he battled with the Baal prophets there on uh, Megiddo. As far as 
historical. Um, if I was king of the world, which we can all be <laughs> thankful I'm not, but if I was the king of the world, I would decree that every person on the planet had to go visit Yad Vashem, hmm. uh, the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. It is gut-wrenching, but it's important. Um, hmm. the, the memorial to the children, a million and a half children, uh, the Valley of the Communities, which memorializes entire Jewish communities that were eradicated during the Holocaust. It's such an instructive place to be because it reminds us just how dark human hearts can be and the cost that that sometimes exacts. Um, As far as the ancient aspect of historical, um, Masada. I love going to Masada. I think the story of Masada is fascinating. And again, it's instructive to us. Uh, So those would kind of be my hit parade. If I could only go four (laughs) places, those would be them. Maybe you're just joining us. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, talking today with Bill Crowder. He's vice president of teaching content for Our Daily Bread Ministries. And uh, maybe you use their devotional, as my wife and I do. If so, you have enjoyed his writing. Well, describe the unique opportunity that you had to participate briefly in an actual archaeological dig. Well, the third trip that we led, I worked with a different tour agency, and one of the brilliant ideas they came up with was that we participate in a dig. And so we got up in our hotel in Jerusalem, loaded onto the bus, drove through the Valley of Elah, which, of course, is where David fought Goliath, and came out of the other end of the Valley of Elah, and they took us up into this area where there was was an archaeological crew working. I suspect that they had a section of the site kind of roped off for amateurs like us. Uh, We weren't anywhere near where the major dig was going on, but it was a part of the overall site. And they took us into the site where they wanted us to dig. The director of the archaeological dig gave us a few minutes of instructions on what to, what not to, you know, what the best approach is, how to handle things, stuff like that. And then he said this, and and this is what really got the group excited. He said, I want you to know, I didn't come in here this morning and put a lot of stuff under the surface so you had something to find. (laughs) Anything you pull out of the dirt has not been touched by human hands in 2,000 years. Wow. So have fun. Hmm. And, uh, I mean, that that was kind of a moment where there was just a buzz in the room. And uh, people started digging in. He said, I don't know what you'll find. He said, mostly what you'll probably find are shards of pottery, Mm -hmm. uh, broken pottery that's been buried. But he said, a week or so ago, uh, someone found an intact olive oil lamp. Hmm. And he said, that was a great find. He said, I'm not saying you'll find one. We didn't. And even (laughs) if we had, we would have had to turn it in anyway, because uh, Israeli Antiquities Authority likes to keep that stuff um, for obvious reasons. But we started digging we spread out through the area. We started digging, and mostly we did pull out little shards of pottery. And, and he said, in case you're a little disappointed when it was time for us to wrap up the digging side of it, in case you're disappointed that's all you found, let us show you what we do with it. So they took us up to a work shed where a different crew was taking shards of pottery and reassembling them into these vases that were like four or five feet tall. Hmm. And you could see the cracks in them from all the shards that had been re-put together. And watching them reconstruct something that had been so completely and utterly broken, I thought was not only fascinating, 
I thought it was a really brilliant illustration of what salvation does. Salvation takes all of our broken pieces and makes us whole again in Christ. A dig for a day. That's our conversation today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, joined by Bill Crowder, who has led a number of tour groups to Israel, one of which found him at a real live archaeological dig. You know, people sometimes associate biblical archaeology with notions of grandeur and excitement, but I think you discovered it is mostly patient digging, brushing, and cataloging. What was the coolest thing you did find? Uh, I'm assuming it's, it's one of these shards of pottery, yes? Yeah, and the nice thing about it is at my home in North Carolina, I've got a little bag of pottery shards. They had a kind of a refuse pile of shards that didn't fit into anything they were trying to reassemble. And they said, you can't take the ones that you dug out because they have to stay here until they have been cataloged and see if they can be fitted into some uh, Mm -hmm. piece that's being put back together. But there's a pile over there. If you want to take a half a dozen pieces, help yourself Hmm. and have some memories of the dig. And that was pretty cool because, again, those were things that were 2,000 years old, and I've got them in my house. Hmm. All right. What about that listener who says, boy, this is striking a chord with me. I really want to do this. Any reality checks about the heat, uh, the weather, the, uh, the logistics of doing this over a longer period of time, which you didn't have the opportunity to do, but which you could certainly... I think, uh, speak to. Thoughts there? Well, I think for somebody who wants to do just a trip to Israel, it's a great idea. And I would encourage people to do it. If you are a pastor and you're considering maybe leading a trip, to me, there are kind of like three big hitting ideas. One, get the right tour group. Um, There are a lot of tour groups out there. And I'm just being real candid with you, John. Um, There are some tour groups that are purely in it for profit. They're not nearly interested in the experience that you and your group have as they are in the money they're going to make off of your group. And so Mm -hmm. as a result, you end up going to all these places that really don't have a lot of biblical value. Almost every place over there where somebody thinks something might have maybe happened sometime, who knows, (laughs) they've built a church on it. And so you end up going to those things and spending a lot of time at those churches because it doesn't cost anything. So they can occupy your time visiting these churches that may or may not have any real historic value. Um, With a good tour agency, like as I described earlier, they'll be very responsive to the trip that you want to craft for your people. Um, With uh, the tour group that I worked with, um, I told them I wanted to do something on our last day in Jerusalem that I had never done before. And that was, I wanted it to be a passion day where we followed the steps of Jesus. And so we started in the traditional side of the upper room, and then we went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then we went to some other places that were pertinent to Christ's last day. And then we ended up at the Garden Tomb area, which overlooks Gordon's Calvary. And, um, In the garden tomb area, we closed the day with a communion service that was really one of the most meaningful worship experiences I've ever been able to be a part of. So if you're going to lead one, get the right tour agency. That's the first thing. The second thing is with a lot of these tour agencies, what they do for the tour organizers, they say for every so many people that you get to sign up for the trip, you get a free trip. And so 
you have some guys who say, okay, this is going to be like my side hustle. I'm going to lead a trip. I'm going to get a bunch of extra people to go, and I'm going to pocket that money. And that's perfectly legitimate. A lot of guys do that. But what we thought we would do is try to take some of that and invest it back into the trip. So um, what I did was our last trip was about 30 people. And so I had four guys from our church who were leaders in the church and uh, trustworthy and respected and all that. And um, what we did was we told them, if you would be group captains, I'll pay for half of your trip. And so they were delighted with that. That saved them a lot of money. So, you know, just some things like that to get some help so that you're not carrying the weight of all of the details of the trip by yourself. And then the third thing is you've got to have a good Israeli guide. Now, the Israeli guide that we had uh, was a lady named Ella Carney, and she had actually been a paratrooper in the Israeli Defense Force when she was younger, and now she's a full-time tour guide, or she was when she worked with us. And she brought so much energy and excitement, and she could bring stuff about the land, about the natural history, about the nation's history, things like that, and then hand it off to me, and I would do the biblical part of it. And it made for a great team working together, so the group got a really holistic understanding of whatever place was that we had stopped at. A lot of very practical tips there on leading a tour and also your insights on that archaeological dig. Really great stuff. Bill, our time is unfortunately gone. I want to say thank you for those insights on a dig for a day. Hey, thanks for being with us on The Land and the Book. Hey, it's been a pleasure, John. Thanks so much for inviting me. Well, we've talked about the land. We're going to get into the book as Charlie returns next on The Land and the Book. It's interesting. When my wife and I sit down to read Moody Bible Institute's Daily Devotional, and uh, I get to read the scripture, how many times I come to a verse and I just stop and, and we'll talk and say, now, why was that that way? Why did they say that? We go back and forth just like you do when you read the scripture, either by yourself or with a friend or spouse. Those questions do bubble up, don't they? Well, good news. As those questions do come to you, you can always send them our way here at The Land and the Book. Our host, Dr. Charlie, is in the chair. His Bible is open. And before we get to today's questions, I have to ask, once our program is over, Where do you turn for more content about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people? Well, Life and Messiah has been focused recently on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel. Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to these important topics, and we encourage you to check out their content, which will be inspiring and uplifting. As a special for Land in the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button, You can get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org. And then click on the Moody Radio button. Interesting question that we'll start with from Margie. She wants to know, when the armies of Israel set out for a battle, where did the non-Jews from Egypt camp? And did they march in the battle as well? Also, were they given an inheritance or place to dwell in Israel across the Jordan? Well, in relationship to the first question, I'll tell you what I tell my students in class. Those are great questions. I wish I had some great answers to go with them. (laughs) Ultimately, the Bible doesn't tell us how the mixed multitude were integrated into the nation. In fact, 
The only time they're ever really mentioned during the Exodus is Exodus chapter 12, very early on. Uh, The two words used there in Hebrew literally mean mixed many or great mixture. So we're not given an exact number, and we really don't know if they were a sizable number or simply a significant enough group to be mentioned, though still a relatively small percentage of the overall population. Now, it's possible the group scattered among the different tribes. That is, rather than staying together and forming their own group, it's possible these non-Israelites stayed close to the Israelite families they'd come to know prior to the Exodus. But again, that's only speculation. We're just not told. But in terms of being given an inheritance, there we do have an answer. In Exodus 19.34, God said, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. The stranger is a reference to these non-Israelites living among the nation, and God's command is that they're to be allowed to live among Israel with the same rights and privileges as the Israelites. Now, in Ezekiel 47.22, God says the same thing will be true during the millennial kingdom when they'll be given an inheritance in the land. Todd says, I had somebody ask me a question about Revelation 22, verse 15. And if the evildoers mentioned there are consigned to the lake of fire by this point, why does it sound like they are outside the wall of the city? Yeah, and looking at that one verse by itself can cause, I think, some confusion. But I think the verse makes more sense when we see the larger context. You know, In Revelation, John's drawing sharp contrasts. You know, believers, unbelievers, blessing, punishment, heaven, hell, new Jerusalem, lake of fire. Uh, For believers, the promise is heavenly Jerusalem where God will dwell with them, wipe away all the tears from their eyes, banish death, mourning, crying, pain, and only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life enter that city. Uh, In contrast, the unbelievers experience the second death, the lake of fire. Uh, In fact, in 21.8, John says, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And he calls it there the second death. Now, John repeats that same kind of uh, grouping of people. Uh, In fact, he says outside the walls of the old city are, are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Uh, So from the perspective of the new Jerusalem, the unsaved characterized by these sins are outside the place of blessing and bliss. But here's the key. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're just outside the front gate. Uh, Rather, they're completely outside the place of blessing because nothing impure can be inside. Uh, To give an illustration, a rather poor illustration here, but it's the best I can think of right now. I'm not in Jerusalem right now. Actually, I'm here in the States. I'm I'm several thousand miles from Jerusalem. Uh, The Apostle John could say I'm outside Jerusalem while also saying I'm in the United States. Hmm. Now, the two statements don't necessarily suggest that the U.S. is right next to Jerusalem. And I think the same way John's telling us uh, both where these individuals are and where they are not, without saying the two locations have to be right together, side by side. Hope you're enjoying this segment on the land and the book, Questions and Answers with Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And if you'd like to get a question our way, you can email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Yset says a friend has been reading the books of a certain scholar that are causing him to start doubting the scriptures and Jesus' deity. Can you recommend any resources that explain these topics as expressed in the Bible, specific parts of scripture that show Jesus' deity? Yeah, and I did send Yset several links to articles that can help uh, answer the arguments of this scholar. Uh, one of the key points, though, to recognize is that a good scholar is able to make a compelling case, especially when he only presents one side of the debate. 
Uh, so you look for materials online where that individual is engaged in a very public debate with other knowledgeable scholars who are challenging him or her. You know, the biblical theme here is Proverbs eighteen seventeen. The first to present his case seems right till another comes forward and questions him. The real issue, though, comes down to the reliability of the Bible. If the Bible is the Word of God, and I believe it is, then we get our information on the deity of Jesus from what the Bible says about him. Uh, the individual you mentioned rejects the authority and reliability of the Bible. Two books that present the biblical truth about Jesus being God are Josh McDowell's Evidence for Jesus and Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. And for more detail, you can purchase a good systematic theology and read what it says under Christology, which is a summary of all the Bible says about the person and work of Christ. Renate says, please respond to the following sentence. When Jesus died, it wasn't just the death of a man that paid for our sins. It was the death of the incarnate God. She says, I thought God cannot die. Even when we humans die, it's the body. The soul is immortal. Can you explain? Yeah, well, it's partially true, but death is more than just the death of the body. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam, in the day you eat, you shall surely die. Well, Adam didn't die physically that day, but he did experience spiritual death and separation from God. In the book of Revelation, following the great white throne judgment, the unsaved of all ages are cast into the lake of fire, which is said to be the second death. And that involves more than just the death of the body. So I do believe the incarnate Son of God did experience spiritual death in the sense of being separated from God the Father while on the cross and bearing the sin of all humanity. I can't explain how God the Father and God the Son could experience this. But I think that's what Jesus meant when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can't separate the deity and humanity of Jesus since he was fully God and fully man in one person. And Paul clearly says in Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So again, I can't fully comprehend it, but I believe it's what the Bible teaches. This listener takes us to Jesus in the garden, pleading with his father to be spared the horrific ordeal awaiting him. And it's presented as the ultimate example of submitting to a no as an answer from God. He says, but I think Christ's situation in the garden was a unique battle, something no situation, no matter how dire we mortals may face, can compare. So how do you work through all this? Well, I start by saying I agree. It's a unique situation with Jesus there in the garden. But I don't want to make it so unique that there isn't an application for us. Jesus was in genuine agony, even down to, as it says, sweating great drops of blood. And he did ask if it was possible for the cup of judgment he was about to experience to be taken away. But there was no doubt in his mind about following through, since he clearly says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I think as God, he had enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Father for all eternity. And now he was about to be cut off from that place of fellowship and instead bear all our punishment, including separation from the Father while on the cross. Nothing we will ever face can compare to what Jesus experienced. But Perhaps this is where the truth of Hebrews 4.15 comes in. Jesus, as our great high priest, has been tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. Carol says, I heard a pastor connecting 1 Thessalonians 4.13-18 to the second coming of Jesus in Revelation 19 rather than to the rapture. I thought the Greek words used in those two passages were different. Could you help me? Yeah, the word for caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is the future form of the word harpazo, which means to snatch away. Uh, The English word rapture actually comes from the Latin translation of that word by Jerome in the Vulgate. Paul's point there is that believers are going to be snatched away. Now, in Revelation 19.14, which talks about the armies that are in heaven following Jesus, 
The word for following is the Greek word akalutheo. Uh, the army is said to be already in heaven and following Jesus on his return, riding on a white horse. That is, as Jesus returns from heaven on a white horse, he's accompanied by an army from heaven, also riding on white horses. The text doesn't identify the army, but uh, the assumption is it's believers at the time of his second coming. So in answer to the question, there are two different words, and they're describing two different events. One is snatching away believers from earth to heaven. The other is the triumphal return of that army from heaven to earth. And uh, they really do take place at different times. I'm guessing as you listen to Charlie Dyer here, you're saying, boy, I've got a question I'd love to ask him. You can. Send us an email, will you? Thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie's devotional, next. I suppose every nation has a date that will live in infamy. In U.S. history, of course, it's December 7th, 1941. As President Franklin Roosevelt declared it, a date that will live in infamy. Of course, there's also September the 11th and so on. But for ancient Israel, they have their own version, right, Charlie? That's right, they do. It's called Tisha B'Av. All right, we're going to dig into that in your devotional coming up. Welcome back to this uh, fourth and final segment on the land of the book. Charlie's devotional follows this quick Holy Land experience. Listen. Yes, I'm Wayne Lamb from Irving, Texas, and this has been the most amazing trip I've ever been on in my life. I've been on quite a few. I've known of God. I've known about God most of my life, and it was exciting, and I like to read the Bible and study it. But until I got here and actually saw the places that I'd studied about, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Israel, the whole place, and saw that this is where it happened, he was here, and I was walking in some of the same places that he walked in, it really draws you closer. And our group of people, we got together, and it's just like a family, and we're all God's people and brothers and sisters with the same father. But to just sit there and see where our father, everything started and it still goes on today, and after we're gone, we'll be back here too. So anyway, it's just an exciting thing to do, but you, you get to know him and see where he was, that he is for real. Well, Charlie, a date that will live in infamy. What does that mean in ancient Israel's history? Well, to find the answer to that, John, we're going to have to put on work boots and a wide-brimmed hat because today's journey is taking us into a farmer's field. Okay, I can already see the disappointment in some of your eyes. You thought that perhaps we were heading off into a field of golden wheat, gently waving in the breeze, or maybe you pictured us heading into a field with neat rows of vegetables sprouting up like columns of soldiers on parade. But instead, we're standing among long rows of shredded plastic, the remains of miniature hothouses used to provide warmth and protection to produce that has long ago been harvested and shipped off to market. We're actually not here to see what's growing, since it's all gone. No, we're here to hike to that dilapidated structure at the far end of the field. So follow me down these rows of tattered plastic to the other end. And here we are. I can see you're still not impressed. Okay, well, take a seat on one of the overturned plastic crates scattered about while I explain where we are. We're in a typical garden booth set up during harvest time to provide shade for the workers. The material from which the booth is made has changed over time, though the basic design has not. Today, metal poles form the basic structure with burlap and plastic thrown over the top and sides to provide shade from the sun. 
In Bible times, the poles would have been made of wood, and the roof was a mixture of palm branches and cloth or other material placed on top to provide additional shade. These booths served a very specific function. They provided a shaded area where field hands could go to escape the brutal midday sun. Uh, There they could get a drink of water or eat a light noonday meal. Then, after the siesta in the shade, it was back out into the field to continue with the harvest. This was the shelter where Ruth took short breaks while gleaning in the fields of Boaz. It's where she went to get a drink of water and to sit and eat roasted grain with the harvesters. Booths, like this one, served a very practical purpose throughout the time of harvest. But now the harvest is over. The fields are empty. The workers are gone, and the booth, well, having served its purpose, it's now little more than a rickety relic of a harvest time gone by. One pole has already started to lean, and the roof is sagging. The next strong wind that blows through will likely topple what remains. Having served its purpose, it sits abandoned, waiting for its inevitable collapse. But what does this dilapidated booth have to do with the coming week? Well, in just a few days, the Jewish people will be fasting on Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av. The fast is an annual holiday commemorating the destruction of both the first and second temples in Jerusalem, along with a number of other Jewish tragedies throughout history. Today, I want us to focus on the destruction of the first temple, the one built by King Solomon. In Jeremiah's day, the people of Judah were certain God would not destroy Jerusalem. After all, it was the city where God's temple stood. They saw Solomon's temple as a giant talisman, a real-life brick-and-mortar good luck charm. God would never destroy his own house, would he? Or as they chanted back to Jeremiah in chapter 7, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah tried to warn them that no mere building would stop God from judging his people for their sin. He called on them to look back and see what God had done in the past. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. God destroyed his first dwelling place in Shiloh when the people sinned. So how could the people in Jerusalem possibly expect the temple to fare any better? Sadly, the people refused to listen. Jeremiah continued to cry out, though in vain. And finally, God brought about the very destruction he had announced. And that brings us back here to this dilapidated garden booth. In the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah focused on Jerusalem's destruction because of the nation's sin. And in chapter 2, he paused to focus on the impact of that sin on the temple that they had boastfully said would keep them safe. He has violently treated his tabernacle like a garden booth. He has destroyed his appointed meeting place. The temple was similar to a booth in a farmer's field. It served a purpose for a time, but once that time had passed, the booth was abandoned, neglected, and ultimately allowed to fall into ruin. The prophet Ezekiel actually pinpointed the very day the glory of the Lord left his temple. In chapters 9 to 11, God's glory went from the cherubim to the threshold of the temple to the east gate and then out of the city to the Mount of Olives. On that very day, September 17, 592 B.C., the temple ceased being the temple of the Lord and simply became an elaborately decorated building that no longer housed God's presence. It was a booth at the end of the harvest season. Its period of usefulness was over and its sad end was in sight. And though it remained standing for an additional four years, 
The ninth of Av would be the day it ultimately collapsed, the day God destroyed his appointed meeting place. I sense the awkward silence as we sit here, listening to nothing except the mournful whistling of the wind through the tattered bits of plastic dangling from what was once the roof of this booth. Today's devotional is not some happy, upbeat homily. It's a reminder that sin has consequences, that the ninth of Av is a date that points back to God's intervening in the lives of his people in judgment. The temple might have been destroyed by the Babylonians, but it wasn't destroyed because of the Babylonians. It was destroyed because a nation deliberately chose to disobey God and then experience the results of that disobedience. So as we get ready to leave this broken down booth, what lesson can we take with us to help avoid the consequences experienced by the nation of Israel? What can we learn from Tisha B'Av and this solitary booth in a farmer's field that could help us avoid a similar destiny in our own personal lives? I believe Chuck Swindoll provides the answer in his introduction to a series of messages he gave on the book of Lamentations. He wrote, Sowing what we reap is a principle as old as Scripture. Time and again we see examples of it in the Bible as well as in life all around us. Theoretically, we know it's true. Experientially, we've witnessed it as well, but we tend to forget. Prisons exist, standing as stern evidence that crime does not pay. Drug rehabilitation centers and special clinics for alcoholics are both reminders that our bodies cannot be mistreated without severe consequences. Again, the reminder, we reap what we sow. There's a small book hidden in the folds of the Old Testament that many people have never stopped to read. It's a mute reminder that sin, in spite of all its allurement and excitement, carries with it heavy weights of sorrow, grief, misery, barrenness, and pain. It's the other side of the eat, drink, and be merry coin. It's Lamentations, a grim, bold announcement that a holy God will not remain silent forever when his people disobey him. All I can say in response is amen. If God is dealing with something in your life that needs to change, don't ignore his promptings. Today is the one day you know you have, so use it wisely and choose to follow him. Tisha B'Av and this dilapidated booth are both reminders that disobedience brings consequences. Don't confuse God's patience with permission. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Thank you, Charlie. Boy, something to think about there for sure. And maybe you'd like to hear our devotional again. You can hear the whole program, in fact, if you'd like, at thelandandthebook.org, our website, where you'll find lots of other great links there, thelandandthebook.org. Our time is gone, but we say thank you for hanging out today. You can share us with a friend via the podcast. It's at the website, thelandandthebook.org. For our host, Charlie Dyer, our producer, Dan Anderson, I'm John Geiger. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.